Welcome back to License to Spiel. I'm Carl Wonders. And I'm Thad Haight. And tonight we're going to be talking about For Your Eyes Only. Or, I guess more accurately, since this is a podcast, this is For Your Ears Only. Indeed. <laughs> I think that's already been used as a podcast, so don't sue us. <laughs> I'm sure it has. <laughs> no, because we definitely would have looked, would have thought of that if it had Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that, I... that's a much better title than License to Spiel. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> So, Fear Eyes Only was released in 1981, and it was the first of many to come James Bond films that were written by Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson, and it was also the first of several in a row of films that will be directed by John Glenn, who was formerly the editor and, I uh, believe, second unit director in some of these films, and he's stepping up to direct this time, and he'll basically take us all the way through the uh, the Timothy Dalton era as director of these movies. So this was going to be the movie that followed uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. And then, mm-hmm. as I think we talked about last time, when Star Wars came out, uh, they decided, oh, we need to do a space movie. So that's how Moonraker got put in its place. And Fear Eyes Only, I, it really feels to me, and I think I've heard it at various places, that this was kind of a reactionary movie in a way where they... They thought that Moonraker was very successful, but at the same time, they'd gone way beyond the Fleming, you know, stories that had come from the novels. And they went, I mean, they literally went into space in the last movie and they said, well, let's maybe we should dial some of that back and do a little bit more of a rooted in reality kind of movie. I don't I don't know what your your history with this movie is and what you've always how, how you tended to think about it. It's sort of been like middle of the road for me i'd say okay um i really don't like uh the whole bb plot right um other than that i think i everyone agrees with me on this one that the the uh, the intro where they get rid of not uh not blowfeld is uh right. not great cinema <laughs> <laughs> it it certainly stretches into the realm of silly yeah <laughs> i mean i I like it more from a meta standpoint where they were essentially giving the middle finger to Kevin McClory and mm-hmm. saying, you won't let us use Spectre and you won't let us use Blofeld in, in these movies. We don't need them. We're just going to move on without you. F you, basically. <laughs> Which I, I think works much better than the actual stuff we got on film. I do like the little bit at the beginning where they show Bond going to uh, Teresa's gravestone and putting the roses down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of nice continuity there even though it's different actors and everything but it's still a nice way of tying well and it definitely uh kills the theory that bond is just a title given to different people it does which i'm absolutely fine with uh i I don't care that he changes faces and ages and things like that i just you know it's it's the same guy the whole time yeah speaking of which this is certainly for me the movie when roger moore becomes too old for the part he definitely looks it a bit uh, it's not as it's not horrible in this movie, not like it will be in the next two. No, uh, but it is. It, yeah, I mean, we started to see him getting a little old last movie, and in this movie, he definitely looks older. Yeah, to the point where I'm, you know, watching this opening sequence where he's in a remote-controlled helicopter, and he's climbing around on the outside, and and I think there's more not Roger Moore than there is Roger Moore in these scenes, <laughs> and I think that extends through a lot of this movie where. Yeah. Roger, Roger Moore's stunt double gets a lot of screen time. A little bit, yeah. I, I think um, at this point, Bond is definitely looking like Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and Roger Moore's in his mid-50s at this point, yeah. 
<laughs> yes. I also find the whole Blofeld getup in this movie fairly ridiculous. He has, I think, the world's largest remote control set up on his wheelchair. Yes. Also, has he been wearing that neck brace for the last 10 years? <laughs> he must have. I, I mean, for all we know, he was in another accident <laughs> at some point, <laughs> but I doubt it. I, I am kind of surprised they were able to get away with putting the cat in the movie. Just, yeah, you, you would think that that, that would be more recognizable a, a than anything else. step too far. Yeah. Shh, you want to get sued? And I wonder, do, do you know, did McClory protest this scene? I don't know that for a fact. He might have. And the only reason I say that is because, you know, next time in two years we get both Octopussy, which is the official so-called official James Bond movie and then we also get Never Say Never Again which is the Kevin McClory film and I wonder if he raised objections to this in some way and that's what led to him getting the rights to make the new movie because it it seems like an odd coincidence to me that they would include a Blofeld type character in this movie and then two years later he's making his own James Bond movie or have they already reached the agreement for that at this point they may have yeah I'm what because I because I also feel like this could have been a response to them reaching the agreement to let him make a movie too yeah that's a good point that could be too yeah as ridiculous as this entire sequence is I think that there's some rather spectacular uh helicopter piloting going on here because it seems like it is an actual helicopter not a model for most of these shots of it flying around these smokestacks and everything i mean obviously when it goes inside the factory thing that's a practical setup that's not a real helicopter but the actual flying here is pretty good as other than the fact that it's a ludicrous idea okay well there were still there were uh, they had started they had started pre like planning for the movie in the 70s but then there were additional legal issues in 1980 um doesn't say when they specifically reached a settlement on that case at least not on the article about never say never again so i'm not really sure where else to look okay well if you are an expert on the legal history of the james bond franchise let us know whether whether this uh never say never again was all the deal to make never say never again was already in place at this point or not yeah we'd be interested to find out meanwhile we see that uh James Bond has found a way to unlock the helicopter, I guess, from the remote control. And there's that funny moment of him chasing after the, the wheelchair guy and picking him up. And he says that he'll buy him a delicatessen in stainless steel. Right. What? <laughs> uh, so I, I don't remember all of the... It, it, it's a dumb line. Um, and I don't remember... <laughs> <You> think? <laughs> I don't remember all the details, but I seem to remember reading somewhere that Cubby Broccoli was, it was his idea for the line, and it has to do with some kind of deal that gangsters made in some way or another, and I don't, like gangsters in New Yorkers, I don't, I don't know, um, it's a silly line, it, it, it always sticks out to me ever since, and it's one of those lines that, and I think you said that you hadn't picked up on it before. But no, it, I don't it, think I ever had before. I mean, I knew he yelled something, but I don't think I had ever quite caught that particular line before. Well, and 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 it's a it's such a ridiculous string of words that you wouldn't even like. Wait, did I hear that right? Is that what he really said there? I, you know, <laughs> like, what does it mean? <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> well, whatever it is, it doesn't really convince James Bond to do anything other than 
continue his plan of dropping him down a smokestack. And thus Mr. endeth... <laughs> I think I'm going to put the clip in now. <laughs> thus endeth Ernst Stavro Blofeld's participation in James Bond until Spectre. And... and then yes, we get a we, we get a title sequence that's interesting in that we see Sheena Easton, the singer, on screen for the only time this happens. Yeah. Un unsurprisingly, I think what happened was uh, Morris Bender saw her and said, "Oh, I need to put you in the thing because I think you're gorgeous," and that's how that hap That's how that came about. I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. No. It's slightly disappointing that his only real contribution to this other than Sheena Easton is a bunch of weird, like, water things and the usual naked women running around. <laughs> yes. I, I think if you took Sheena Easton out of this, there would be nothing memorable about these titles. No, but the song is good. For your eyes only, I never need to hide. You can see so much in me, so much in me that's new. song is definitely of its time it we'll get into it throughout the podcast i think the rest of the music is a bit outdated for 1981 You were i was i was in favor of it you were kind of lamenting the disco aspects of uh the spy who loved me uh you know bill conti came on and did this score it's not a john barry score it's clearly not a john barry score and not even trying to sound like one uh and yeah it's it's definitely a very late 70s sound to it but i think the song is quite good it's a very early 80s feel to it uh it's mm -hmm. i put it in my top tier of of yeah, no, I Songs? think it's pretty good. Yeah. So, then after the theme, we get a fishing trawler that is secretly a British spy ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I wanted to know, is the British government selling fish on the side? Probably. Like, what is, Keeping up what is this arrangement here? Yeah. So, like, I hadn't 
I remembered a lot of this movie, but not like all of it. And I was mm-hmm. honestly wasn't sure at first whether that mine had been deliberately planted or if it just happened to be a mine that had been floating in the Mediterranean since World War II or something. Okay. Um, I think the or, implication yeah, is yeah, that, it... but uh, but yeah, we see them in the warehouse later. Right. So then we right. Know right. That... Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like it was rusty, and you know. Well, I mean, like floating thought, around in the my waters. Thought is that was oh, is this completely? Is this a complete accident that just gives them a good chance to uh, good opportunity? Or... Mm-hmm. But I kind of think that would have worked. I, I kind of wish it had worked out that way. But anyway. Oh, that it hadn't been um, a deliberate attempt to blow up the ship. Yeah. Well, I guess the only way that doesn't necessarily work is that how would the Russians know that this was a secret ship and not just some fishing trawler that hit a mine by mistake good point although i mean you do get yeah because now now that i'm thinking about it because then we see the scene with gogol and he take gets a phone call in the company of a woman as he tends to be <laughs> and gogol says oh you know we've already contacted our usual man in greece to recover this atac system as though they hadn't already arranged that because you'd think if this was a deliberate attempt to sink the ship then they would have already been in contact with the man in greece who they do some editing here to make you not figure out who the man in Greece is for a while. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess it could work either way. Although, as you said, they find the mines in the warehouse later. It seems fortuitous until if we find out it's not. Right. And I'm fine with that. Yeah. And we have the scene with not M. Because we have no M in this movie. Sadly, we have no M in this movie. Uh, Bernard Lee had attempted to do some scenes for this movie and was just physically unable to do them. He was dying of stomach cancer at the time, and so his scenes got cut, and they replaced him with, um... I already forgot his name. The guy who's not Frederick Gray, who we've seen multiple times. Uh, Bill Tanner? Yes, Bill Tanner, who shows up again later in the Craig era, actually. Oh, does he? Yeah, um... The actor or the character? No, the character, because, uh, he's... Rory Kinnear, the guy um, who's, at least for me, is most recognizable as the guy from that episode or that episode of Black Mirror. Uh, <laughs> he, yeah, his. I mean, I'm assuming his name is Bill because they call him Tanner. So I'm wondering. I'm guessing oh, it's meant yeah, to be the same sense. guy. Yeah, or at least the but same. But anyway, name. we have we have Frederick Gray in in the in the scene here, and mm-hmm. we and um, speaking of people who have been in other things you probably may not know but there's a lot of i'm I'm noticing as we get closer and closer to modern times i guess (laughs) (laughs) um i'm seeing more and more actors i recognize from other things that i have seen because i haven't watched all that much british stuff from the 60s but like uh for instance we have the first lord of the admiralty is played by graham crowden who i know from uh, BBC, uh, or I don't know if it was BBC, but a British sitcom about a nursing home called Waiting for God. Okay. He's the he's the uh, not deep enough, I'm afraid guy, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm like, wait, is that? And then I look at him I'm like, yes, it is. Uh, okay. So, the, the only reason I know that show is because it was one of the many shows that my local PBS station would show on Saturday nights in the 90s. Hmm, okay. As they'd like to do with random British shows. British shows, yeah. I will admit to have not watched live PBS in years, so I don't know if they still show British comedies on Saturday nights, 
But yeah. at one time, that was a staple of PBS. On Saturday nights, they would show half-hour British comedies. Yes. So, anyway. The, the, there's another guy later who I've seen in a lot of things that I'll point out. But uh, okay. anyway, I just pointed out that guy because I actually recognized him. And you, there hadn't been that many people I recognized in previous movies. But in this one, I recognized a whole bunch of people. Yeah, it, it seems to be a thing about British productions that everyone seems to show up at some point in these things. There's only it feels like. so many a- actors in yeah. one country. I mean, yeah, 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 it yeah makes of course. Sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, in America, the Hollywood is considerably larger. Oh, absolutely. Than, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, is there a term for? Is there a British equivalent to Hollywood? I d- I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. And if you watch a lot of British television which i do mm-hmm. uh i mean obviously usually only like the good stuff that makes its way over here but <laughs> uh you, you you tend to recognize people so yeah yeah and especially you know thanks to you know big show big american shows too like game of thrones where we'll see mm-hmm. several people well, including in this we see at least of... two of them from this movie uh turn up who were on game of thrones um I believe Game of Thrones is actually a joint British-American production. Right. Yeah, that would make sense because they do a lot of stuff over there, a lot of the filming. Um, but yeah, you see, yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll see a character from Game of Thrones later in this movie. Two of them. Two of them. Interesting. Yes. I didn't. I only noticed one. Well, Julian Glover is the Grand oh, Maester. Oh, yeah, duh. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, I know who you're I thinking. Per- I knew who you were thinking of, but <laughs> yeah, it wasn't him. You knew who I was thinking of. But yes, yeah. obviously Julian Glover as well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Julian Glover is less recognizable as this character as Christodos and the Grand Maester than Charles Dance is as Henchman number five and Tywin Lannister. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I didn't notice Charles Dance for the longest time until I was like, wait. And I actually went back. This is the oh, first time I Charles noticed Dance. Charles Dance in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you're like, how did I not notice Charles Dance was in this yeah. movie? Probably because he has a big blonde wig on, I think, but which is weird because he has blonde hair anyway, but yeah, okay. maybe it, maybe it isn't a wig. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's just his early '80s hair. I so I do believe this is his first film role. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the first thing I remember seeing Charles dance in is um, the movie Last Action Hero. Oh yes, yep. Where he plays the villain. Charles Dance pretty much always plays villains. Yeah, because I was about to say I think the first time I remembered seeing him was in Alien Three. Oh yeah, and... he is an Alien Three. Yeah, I only just watched um, the Alien sequels. Well, okay, I had seen Aliens. I only mm-hmm. just watched the post Aliens sequels last year. Okay, you weren't missing a lot. You know, I actually really enjoyed Alien Three. Yeah, I I like with the first three Alien movies. I like that while they are technically part of the same series. I mean, they have the same main character. Um, they are... All three are by very different directors and are very different movies. No, absolutely. Did you see the Fincher version of Alien 3 or the theatrical version? Oh, no, I saw the uh, the director's cut. Okay. because it's extended it's, cut or whatever they call substantially it. substantially better. That's what I've heard. That's why I watched that one. And it's funny, like, you can see where David Fincher is going to go from that movie, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, it definitely feels like a Fincher movie. Yeah. So, back to Bond. Back to James Bond, yes. Uh, we then get the brief scene where uh, we have the archaeologist who we presume and later find out is 
secretly working to find the wrecked ship. Mm -hmm. And he's killed by a Cuban assassin, apparently. Yeah. So the archaeologist is played by Jack Headley, who I was looking through his things because I know I've seen him in things. I couldn't find anything specific, but he's been in a lot of things. Yeah, he's he's one of those that guys, I think. Yeah. But I but I I'm with you. Like I I know I've seen him, but I just can't put my finger on where. Mm -hmm. But we also meet Melina Havelock. Yes. Uh, who I think is, I, I'm I'm really glad that we have entered the later more era where our female leads are not completely useless right because <laughs> she actually is she is not useless she does a lot in this movie yeah uh she she so shows a lot of agency for herself uh mm -hmm. i appreciate the fact that she's not always making the best decisions but she's making ones that make sense to her yes you know there are several times and we can chalk this up to you know, of course, it's going to be Bond where he's trying to talk her out of doing certain things um, or, you know, she creates more problems for Bond at, at, at various points. But no, I, I agree. I think she she never ends up having to be rescued or anything like that necessarily. Um, I mean, Bond jumps in to interrupt certain things at times, but she never seems incompetent or in any way. Um, no. And 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 I like the fact that you know, which is very atypical, especially for the more era. There's not a lot of he, Bond isn't hitting on her all the time, <laughs> to put it to be blunt about it. Um, I'm one. I I almost wonder if part of that is because he, because of what he saw with BB really trying to get with him, and he's just sort of. I wonder if Bond was almost being introspective and wondering is this how it is for women when i'm with them I... <laughs> or am i giving him too much credit that might be a little too meta um i mean so i i read an interview a long time ago with richard maybaum who co-wrote the script and he kind of lamented the fact that he didn't think john glenn the director did handled this well because i guess his intention with the story was that Melina is so hell-bent on getting revenge that she doesn't even really notice Bond in a lot of ways. And, you know, the reason that nothing, there's no romantic chemistry between the two is purely because she's just not interested in any of that stuff. She's very single-minded. I think it comes through a little bit. Um, I'm fine with how it turned out. I'd rather not have 56-year-old Roger Moore hitting on Carol Bouquet, who's in her 20s. Well, I mean, they do still end the movie... Yes, they do. Fashion. Of course they do. They they have to do that, I guess. But um, For your eyes only, darling. Which is a bad line. <laughs> it is, but I, I understand why they made the line. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we see her... She's, her parents are killed in front of her, and she is clearly going to swear revenge. And then we get Money Penny with a giant filing cabinet mirror. Yes, um... That is a really big mirror. It, For, like, a fold-out, you know, hidden in the filing cabinet mirror, that's big. <laughs> it really is. I hate to say this, but this is really, too, where Lois Maxwell's getting a little too old for the role that she's yes. been written for. Yes, I would agree with that. It works a little bit better in the fact that Roger Moore's also getting up, up there in years, so I don't mind it quite so much. Like if no, it, it had works because they look, yeah, they look... They look contemporaries to me. Yeah. I don't actually know how old Lois Maxwell was in this movie. Um, yeah, she would have been in her mid-50s as well, so that works. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, that works fine. Now, yeah, now this is where we meet Bill Tanner because M is on leave, as they say. I do like the the interchange with Bond and Money Penny as he's about to walk into the office, and she's like, and, and she asks like, uh, "Aren't you forgetting something?" Because he's holding a carnation, and mm-hmm. he's like, "Oh, well, since M's away." Yeah, right. <laughs> gives it to her. Gives it to her. Yes. <laughs> Implying that he was going to give it to M. <laughs> give Give M a carnation. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, 007. <laughs> Can you just imagine Bernard Lee's response? That's probably not unlike that. Yeah. So we have the one non-padded door, one padded door again. Yeah, that's. I think that's going to stick around for a while. I gotta say, I do love the padded door. I It just... I see the padded door, I think, in M's office. Um, yes. That was yes. One of the scenes that I absolutely loved in the Craig era at the end of Skyfall when we get the, mm-hmm. the implication that we're now getting into like traditional Bond territory and the scene ends with him visiting M's office talking to M and he opens and he goes through the padded door yep and then I like that you know they have the exchange at the desk and then they have the master shot of the office and it's exactly the way that office always was and I'm Yes. It's like, oh, that's awesome. I love My that. only problem with that scene is I cannot see Rafe Fiennes and not think Voldemort. <laughs> Perhaps. Although I, I actually really like Rafe Fiennes in, in oh, Skyfall. I, I and I think he's a great role. Yeah, yeah. I, I do. I just, whenever I see him, I immediately think Voldemort. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yeah. And not M is even smoking a pipe. I'm just going to call him not M. Not him. Okay. <laughs> this is this is when Frederick Gray's lines are being written by that guy from Under Majesty's Secret Service, where he keeps going mm, all the time. Mm. Yes. In this movie. <laughs> but he doesn't quite have the right pitch for it. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't go. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> also, so once again, I like I like Bond's suit. Yeah, the pinstripes. Yeah, they look yeah, good. good. They look good. Yeah, we had we had a uh, some questionable costume decisions in Moonraker, I think, but now we're back to some some nice yeah nice looks. Well, he's no longer wearing bell bottoms except in the intro, so that helps. Yes, that does help a lot. <laughs> so now, is this are we in Greece or Albania? I don't remember. I think they're in Spain. Is it Spain? Okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. Mediterranean. Yeah, some Mediterranean country that has olive trees, because we find that out later. Um, I mean, isn't that all of them? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> this whole sequence feels has always felt weird to me. Just because Bond sneaks in and gets captured by this Gonzalez guy, and then they go and they talk to him, and then they just kick him out. And again, just shoot him. Yeah, just shoot him. Meanwhile, uh, you know, Gonzalez then decides to dive into the pool and get shot in the back by a crossbow. Yeah, and we get the scene where everyone thinks he does a belly flop until they see he's dead. Yes. We see and some of the least we, effectual henchmen. I also feel like if you got shot there in your lower back with a crossbow, you wouldn't die instantly. Or mid-back. No, you, you wouldn't. Uh, Bond is... Oh, and we should say that Bond sees this other guy in a suit giving Gonzalez money, and he turns up throughout with the movie. With hexagonal glasses. With hexagonal... Or, Steel no, rim glasses. Octagonal glasses. Octagonal glasses. Octagonal, yes. It. They're octagonal. I have, I have things to say about the identigraph later. <laughs> yes. 
but uh and he gets away with a parasol yeah and it's definitely not roger moore in that one shot of him jumping off the wall there it is in fact not roger moore <laughs> like not even slightly yeah now i do think that and i think this is a trend that we get throughout the rest of these films from this period i i do think john glenn does action really well yeah i think that you know bond escapes and then he's about to get shot and the guy gets shot by melina who's there with her crossbow we get to see uh james bond's burglar alarm on his car (laughs) (laughs) quite the burglar Uh, alarm quite the burglar alarm that explodes the entire car which you know admittedly when when Q is giving him crap for it later. It's like, no, you can't blame Bond for that, for your burglar alarm that blows up the whole car. That you chose to put in there. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the giant burglar protected uh, thing on the window. That, yes. Good. Yeah, yeah. And it's a it's a nice scene where Bond's like, I hope you have a car. <laughs> right. And it turns out to be that's the Citroen car that probably has about three horsepower in it yeah it's like the citroen version of the fiat 500 except yes power. yes right because it has that that like sardine can uh uh soft top like a like a mm-hmm. yeah that pe- it kind of rolls up yeah and and this is a admittedly silly chase scene it's but a I, silly I, chase scene, I like but it, it works it does I enjoy yeah it a lot yeah i enjoy most of the car scene car chase scenes in bond films mm-hmm it is very silly, but it works. I like how the car rolls over and then... <laughs> take the low the road. The Not that help low. push it back. And, yeah. And then how they take the shortcut through the olive fields and mm-hmm. keep getting ahead of the other cars. Yep. The one car gets knocked over and then slides down the hill and then the other one ends up in the olive tree at the end. Uh, yes. And that is how they harvest olives. They just put nets down on the trees and let the mm-hmm. olives do their thing. Yeah. We, we get the patented uh, Roger Moore smirk when the one car pulls up next to them and he just looks over and does the thing, the, the Roger Moore face, <laughs> uh, which he's usually doing to Jaws previously. Yeah, and, and thankfully we don't have the, oh no, this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh boy. We do have... We do have him introducing himself as Bond, James Bond, which I feel doesn't work as well because he looks really old in that scene. He does, yeah. Like, he still is very charming because he's Roger Moore. Who, you know, I'm sure was extremely charming to his dying day. Uh, But, yeah. I have trouble believing him as an action hero in the prime of his career. I mean, he never was a physical person like he never no he wasn't he never did the fights we're all we've been harping on his fighting Mm -hmm. since day one you know with roger moore but now it's just it's ludicrous when he's hanging off the side of a helicopter yeah and then you cut to to rear projection and 56 year old roger moore hanging on to the the fake outside of a helicopter (laughs) yeah so he you know he gets away with melina they have that short little scene in their hotel or whatever where she's talking about how she's going to go after the guy that she saw pay off Gonzalez and Bond advises her against it to no avail. And I think it's interesting that we then see Bond getting chewed out by Tanner and and Frederick Gray because he essentially botched the mission. The whole point was to get information about Gonzalez and Gonzalez was killed. I don't see how they can blame Bond for that. But No, I really don't. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. 
Bond says, well, I did see this other guy. Maybe we should go figure out who he is. And that's what sends him down to Q Branch. And we see the breakaway... Well, you see the fake arm that can be used to smash someone's head, I guess? I guess so. I mean, this is this is where we... I mean, we've been getting them a little bit, I think. But this is really the first time that I'm thinking of where we get an array of gadgets that make no sense at all. The umbrella, I'm really not, like, yeah. used to kill someone, I guess, but you'd have to, like, make them use that umbrella. Yeah, and then hope it, yeah, and then it rains, and then the spikes, yeah, I don't... There's a lot of things that have to go right for that umbrella to work. That, that's, that thing exists only so Bond could look at it and say, stinging in the rain. Yes. <laughs> and then he's, and then he, oh, he says, you put the Lotus back together. He's like, yeah. I disregard these jives about our equipment, 007. Right. And he's like, that was whole again. That was your thing, Q. <laughs> yeah, you you put you put the burglar alarm in there, and then we go off to the identigraph. And because this is the because this is the eighties now, we have computers. We do. That looks like a washing machine, but okay. <laughs> I mean, they did have tapes like that. No, I I know, I know. I don't know if you noticed the cute little in joke with the code that they put in to open the door, because la- last time we got the theme to. Uh, Close Encounters, to open the mm-hmm. door. This time, it's the opening notes to Nobody Does It Better. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I do like how Bond finishes it for him, too. Yes. So this identigraph, um, I have questions. <laughs> so, I'm wondering why, at one point, it shows actual hair. Yes. But then, once he chooses the hair, it goes back to a line drawing. Right. And then, when he prints it out, it's a straight-up photograph. It is. Well, that's the computer saying, "Oh, it's this person." <laughs> oh, was it? Okay, I thought it was. I thought it was a photograph created from the identigraph. Okay. No, no. I think what happened was the identigraph. He, Bond puts in all the stuff into the identigraph, and then the machine uses magical computer logic or whatever to say, the f- the person you're looking for is this person. With that very high tech dot matrix printer there. Yes. I mean, it looks to me like Q is writing this in BASIC. As he's yeah, it's going got the along. Lines and, yeah. yeah. I mean, Bond has really good memory, considering this guy was sitting on the other side of the pool from him. Yes. But, yeah, we get the identigraph. I mean, it. I guess it works. It's how yeah. we find out about the guy. Right. And now we're going to try to... We're, we're, we're going to meet up with our man in Italy. Mm-hmm. I do like... I don't know if you... It's very quick, but... Before they do that, at the very end of the identigraph scene, the, the computer screen at the very bottom says, This machine thanks you for your attention. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye, yes. End of line. <laughs> See, when a computer says goodbye, I just think of America Online. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we're old. There are people who still use it. I know. Trust me, I work. I do tech support for an internet service provider. There are plenty of people who use our service, but still run the AOL software on top of it so that they can, you know, have the you've got mail thing and everything. Oh boy. But yes, we, we're now off to Italy and Bond checks into a hotel and gets one of my favorite things. Instant steam. Oh, does he get instant steam this time? He gets instant steam in his sink. Ah, oh, I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. I missed... Oh, you're right! Instant steam! <laughs> <laughs> like, is there dry ice in the bottom of the sink? Is that what they're doing here? I don't know. But that's how he gets a message on the... Yeah, it says... And this is a message that, for the longest time, I had no idea what it said, because in Pan and Scan, you miss part of it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we probably would have just said Fauna at 10 a.m. in Pan and Scan. Now, 
I've never been to Italy. I've never been up into these mountains or to like these Olympic resort kind of places. Do people really sunbathe in the sun, in the snow? I was wondering about that. Like, <laughs> what's with all the sunbathing chairs? Yeah, like he has he has beach chairs on his little balcony in his hotel, and then he comes up to this mountain lookout place to meet Luigi. And yeah, all these women. Are, I shouldn't say women, but I think they mostly are, are sitting... There are men there, too. Do you also notice James Bond's zipper pull the letter B? Oh my god, no, I missed that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised it doesn't say 007. (laughs) That that would be amazing if it said 007. Because that's that's the kind of secret agent he is. I kind of want to, like, get this jacket and wear it to, like, a convention sometime and see if anyone would get it. I doubt it, but that would be amusing. Then somebody would have to dress up like Luigi and be with him. Are there James Bond conventions? I don't know, actually. There have to be, right? There, yeah, you would think. I mean, yeah, I don't know. But yes, we meet Luigi. We have the, we have our stand, we have our code word here. The snow this year is better at Innsbruck, but not at San Moritz. So Luigi says he's gonna uh, have him meet up with his contact, Christados. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I, I do think they, they pull. I mean. We aren't at the fake out yet, but honestly, if no. you're watch, if you're listening to us, you really should have seen the movie already. Um, yes, <laughs> I do think they do the fake out with Christados very well. He seems to be on Bond's side. Yeah, I I definitely think that this little twist here is handled really well. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, even when and we'll get to it later when Columbo, the other guy, confronts him on it, you're still not quite sure what's going on until later. Yeah, like, you wonder if, is Columbo trying to trick him? Yeah. Now, it, it doesn't help, for me now, as an older person, not old, but, you know, ha- having seen more things, seeing Julian Glover, who I mostly recognize as being a member of the Galactic Empire in Empire Strikes Back. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and he was the villain in the third Indiana Jones movie. And yes, he's he was. the Grand Maester in Game of Thrones. Versus the guy who played Tevia in, in Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, you know, That's fair. That's a good point. I tend to think that, yeah, I should have seen it coming that Julian Glover is not the good guy in this movie. But, you know, that's not all. I mean, typecasting doesn't always happen, so. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would say, I'm actually not 100% sure. Uh, is it pronounced Topol? I think it's Topol. Topol? Okay. Yeah. He clearly has range, because those are very different characters. Yes. Although I will say that the way he plays Columbo is very theatrical. Mm-hmm. He's very broad, and, you know... Which does make sense. Yeah. Because he is a theatrical actor. I guess we should also mention that this is where we meet B.B. Doll, who is a figure skater, uh... who I guess is getting sponsored by Christados. She's easily the, my least favorite part of this movie. Yes. Leaving aside all of the icky stuff that she does, because she spends half the movie trying to sleep with Bond. She's also just obnoxious. She Yes, I was about to say, like, and the only other thing I know Lynn Holly Johnson, the actor, was in was a movie called, I think it's Ice Castles, I believe, where she plays a figure skater. Is she actually a figure skater in, like, real life? I think to some degree. I mean, it seems like it is her doing the skating. I mean, it, no one would mistake her for a world-class figure skater, but she also seems to at least right. know what she's doing. Like, she does spins and she does some jumps and mm-hmm. things. I don't, I can't speak to her abilities as an actor, so I don't know if it's just the part is so terribly written and no one could have done well with it. That's entirely possible. You know, I, I don't know. I just know that it's it's hard to watch, and especially these days. <laughs> we have definitely left 
the era of pandering to Americans, I think, because she's the only American character in the movie, and she is clearly shown as an obnoxious American. Yeah, the the, the American pandering that was done early on, uh, especially during the Mankiewicz stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, that certainly has left. Uh, I mean, we have two British people writing these scripts now. Uh, Michael G. Wilson, who was, I think, the stepson of, uh, of Cubby Broccoli. And he, he's been around... He's he he has cameos in a lot of these movies. Um, I'm I can't say I could point out to where he is if he's even in this movie, but he'd been around in the franchise for for years, um, and he's kind of he's stepped in to help write. And Richard Maybaum was also British and has been around since Doctor No. Yeah. So th- it seems like they definitely have moved on from that. Let's bring in American audiences. I don't know that bringing in American audiences was ever an issue for them. No, I don't think so. I was never around, obviously, when these movies came out. Or This is the first, well, no, this is the second movie that was released after I was born, but I certainly wasn't seeing movies when I was two. So, and not this kind of movie, anyway. I was not yet alive when this movie came out. I know. <laughs> so, yeah. In fact, I was not alive for any of the Roger Moore movies. Okay. I don't think. When did A View to a Kill come out? 85? I think that was 80, 85, I think, yeah. Yeah, so no, I was not alive for any of the Roger Moore era. Yeah, uh, The Living Daylights, I think, was 87. Yeah, that would have been my first, the first Bond movie that came out in my lifetime. Okay. Now that we've shown exactly how old I am. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we, get a, we get a little scene where Bond notices that Melina's in town, and for whatever reason, she's attacked by these people. I, I mean, I guess that people recognized her from the chase... Like, I don't know if Locke would have seen her, but... And something that identifies the time period of this is all of the shops have a sign advertising that they take the Bank AmeriCard visa. <laughs> which is what it was called at that time. <laughs> yep. Not even Diners Club. Wow. They, they also take American Express. They do. And there's another one that I didn't... No, they do also take Diners Club. The shop oh, excellent. she goes okay. in where she buys the crossbow has Bank AmeriCard visa, Diners Club, and American Express in the window. There you go. All the big ones. All the big ones from the time, yeah. Yeah, I don't think MasterCard was a thing yet. Most of what I know of 80s credit cards comes from planes, trains, and automobiles. I have, uh, diners, visa, and a, uh, gasoline card. Um, these aren't, uh, credit cards. <laughs> yes. The florist shop only takes Visa and, and American Express, though. Oh, dear. You know, the fact that 100% of the shops that take Visa also take American Express in these pictures, in these in this movie, are putting pay, are kind of showing that those Visa commercials from the late 80s and early 90s were not necessarily accurate. Or <laughs> they only take Visa? Well, there was a thing that's like, you can do this, you can go to this fine restaurant and they serve this and this and you can get this, but they just won't take American Express. That's right. No, I, I do remember those, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. But we all know for everything else there's MasterCard anyway, so... Right, that's right. The, so the, no. the guys on the snow bikes attack and Bond fends them off with a construction gate. Yep, as you do. And I, I do like... I do like when he was trying to keep a low profile and he was ordering flowers and then the one guy goes through the window and I like how the florist goes to hand him the flowers through yes. the broken window. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. And yeah. he's just like, oh, let's save them for the funeral. Right. That was a good line. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line, yeah. 
And this is where we find out that they had tricked her into coming here. Because she got a telegram that appeared to come from Bond. And they get in a horse-drawn sleigh, and this is when they have Amor, apparently. Amore, yes. The, the driver is injecting himself into their conversation a little bit. Uh, and then Bond goes back to his hotel room. <sighs> yeah, he does. And Bibi's there taking a shower. Yep. And then she, and then she gets into bed, gets into bed and takes off her towel. And... To his credit, Bond uh, wants nothing to do with this. Yeah, he's like, I, I, I like when he says, I'm, I'm flattered, but you're in training. And her response does work, I guess. Which is like, everyone knows it builds muscle tone. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, ugh. So creepy. I, I, I do like Bond's, I don't, I, like is a strong word. Bond's little line, dismissive line towards the end where he's like, let's go skiing and I'll buy you an ice cream. Like yes, like you're a kid. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna hang out with you, but yeah. And in case we needed more proof that BB is American, she's wearing a cowboy hat on the ski slopes. She is, which is a choice. It is a choice, all right. Yeah, and and like a cowboy styled ski outfit too. Yes. And she's immediately now hitting on the East German biathlon who guy. wants nothing to do with her. Who wants nothing to do fair. with her? And because he's East German, of course, he actually turns out to be. Working for the bad guys, too. Well, East Germans always work for the bad guys. Of course they do. Every movie in the 80s will tell you that. I have to laugh at, like, Locke's, um, his middle management job, where he just basically hangs out and watches everyone else. Yeah. Like, he's always there, like, just kind of hanging around. I like how, and I do like how we see Eric Kriegler before we find out that he's a villain. We do see him shooting all the targets. Mm-hmm. Which is... And that's also weird because Locke is like half a mile away just watching behind yeah, him in that right. scene, which is also weird. Uh, <laughs> but then that's, that's you know, literally Chekhov's gun because then he is a yes. sharpshooter and try, tries to kill Bond. That was a good scene. I like when the I like when he shoots the ski pole and it whizzes away. It was a decent mm-hmm. sound effect. And I like, yeah, like when he, when Bond kind of dies for cover and he's trying to grab his gun with the ski pole and mm-hmm. like he's pinned down uh, yeah i like this whole section of the movie actually and i think that this is another instance where it's shot well yes bond's like i'm in i'm in trouble it's convenient that kriegler loses his ability to aim at this point but <laughs> well maybe he's not good at hitting a moving target that could be i also don't know what biathlon guns shoot like I don't, I I don't know what type of what type of projectile is being shot from this gun. That that's not to say that it's still has to be a real biathlon weapon, but I think it is though. I think it is yeah. his biathlon gun. And Bond kind of loses himself in a pile of skiers that are getting into a lift. Yes. And he's still holding his broken ski pole, which is he funny. is yeah yeah. And this is where we see Charles Dance. Yeah, this is where Charles Dance comes in. So there's no subtitles or anything here. I've always wondered. Because he he's he's hiding amongst all these people who want to go down the ski the ski jump, which seems to me like a real liability problem for this place. But I guess that's what they did back then. Well, I think they were doing Olympic trials too, because there's a guy recording times and everything. That yeah, that okay. Because the guy that's there is the guy that's like telling them to go. Tries to stop Bond, and I've always wondered: is it because he's clearly not using ski jump skis? He's using just regular downhill skis, which I think would be problematic. 
or maybe it's if it is like an actual trial of some kind then he's not in he's not a contestant he's not supposed to be there yeah i'm not i'm really not sure uh he definitely does there's something wrong there and i but i don't speak italian so i don't know what he says i'm also a little confused here as to what the villain's plan is here because you have Charles Dance kind of waiting down at the bottom. He jumps out. And then you also have Kriegler who's trying to shoot him. So... Yeah, that, that wasn't thought through well. Which one is it? And then we have Bond again on skis running away from the motorcycles. Yeah. Which, this this scene works. I mean, I like I do like when he goes across the table. Yeah. And then when the, the guy, that, the waiter that's diving away from the motorcycles throws a cake in a guy's face. That's right. Funny. Yep. Um, you get a quick shot of the wino guy again for the last time. But he doesn't, he doesn't look in his glass. No, he, it's like his scene was cut or something. Like he's just holding a glass of something and he stands up kind of astonished at what's going on. And then we're onto a bobsled course. Oh yes. We were talking in Honor Majesty's Secret Service about bobsleds in, in movies. And this is the only other time I can think of that there's a bobsled in an action movie. Um, so... Not so fun fact. One of the stuntmen died in this scene. I think I did read that. Yeah, I don't. Rem- I don't remember how. Uh, got pinned under the bobsled. Oh my. Okay. Like one of the guys in the bobsled. I assume it doesn't say. I'm assuming okay. it must have been one of the guys in the bobsled. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It was uh, stuntman Paolo Rigon was killed during filming of the bobsled track portion. During the sequence, the sleigh overturned. With Ragon trapped underneath. He later died Whoa. due to the injuries he sustained. Yikes. Yeah. There is also some quick shots of rear projection here. Yes, anytime you see Roger Moore. And it, what's really weird is, like, again, color balancing would go a long way to fixing this rear projection. Yeah. I mean, there are also times, I think, that Roger Moore is clearly on, like, a sled that's being pulled. Because he's not, it's not a rear projection shot of Roger Moore, and he's clearly Roger Moore still. But I think he's yeah. kind of on like a sled or something that's being towed, which works better. Yes, it does. The The problem is like the color is way off. Like everything's like pale green behind him. Yeah. In the rear projection shots, which makes no sense when you see every other shot. It, yeah. And I don't know if it's just, I mean, anytime you process film, it's going to be degraded, but I don't know. And this is, the, and, and this is before, this is before they had digital grading and things like that too. Yeah, I guess there is that, but I still so, think. Yeah, no, I'm watching this thinking from a modern... I was like, well, they could have just changed the colors, but I guess that wasn't as easy as... That wasn't as easy in 1981 as it is today. They, they were still <laughs> movieola, like, actual cutting film to edit and stuff. I mean, this is... Right, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I apologize to the filmmakers. I am insulting your work thinking about 21st century tools that didn't exist. Yeah, why couldn't they just use Final Cut Pro and fix that or use whatever yeah, the right. avid use an avid program or something. now we we yeah. saw this right <laughs> so Kriegler throws his motorcycle yeah, i know <laughs> i mean i get him trying to use his rifle and then it's all bent up because he went tumbling over this hay bale but then yeah he, he takes his, his motorcycle and throws it at him and then apparently and at some point the wheel him. comes off yeah. while he's throwing it. Yeah. Like the wheel is clearly attached when it leaves right. his hands, but it's not like, I don't know. It's it's attached to the same vehicle that lost the wheel in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get a scene that I 
just wish they would cut out of the movie. Yeah. Like, like they also go to this ice Luigi. rink. Well, poor Luigi, but they go to this ice rink, and absolutely nothing good happens at this ice rink scene. No. Um, we meet BB, which is insufferable as always. And then randomly these hockey guys come out and try to beat up Bond, and Bond bests them eventually by running the Zamboni over a couple of them, or into a couple of them. Yeah, and every time one of the hockey guys goes into the net, an automated score thing indicates a goal, which makes no sense whatsoever, because, I mean, that's way too, there would be way too many false positives if you actually use a system like that in a hockey game. Right. Yeah, yeah, that... There's, there's no way any such system exists, and I know it's in there as a joke, but still. And Bond finds out that Luigi was killed. Yep. And the killer left behind a dove. Because they've been referring to Columbo as the dove. So, now we must go after Columbo. This is where he meets Cristados, I believe? Or no, 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 we, we, uh, first we have to go hang out with, uh, Melina a bit. Yeah. They have a bit of a romantic yeah. walking around, seeing the sights. And I feel like we talked about this a couple times, especially in uh, You Only Live Twice, where I feel like this is the scene that says, in case you forgot we're in Greece, we're going to do these things that clearly may make it so that you know that we're in Greece. Yeah. So I guess they're on Corfu at this point, because he had told Melina to go back to Corfu. I think so. When that makes sense, if you're looking for, if you are going after a ship that sank off the coast of Albania, Corfu is a good place to base from. Mm-hmm. Because... Albania was behind the Iron Curtain. Yes. And Corfu is an island off the northwest coast of Greece. Right. So we get Chemin de Fer again. We do. And this time we, we see another guy who has been in, like, every British television show ever. Um, <laughs> oh, the guy losing all of his money? Yes. With the mm-hmm. with the uh, interesting eye arrangement. Yeah. That's probably why I recognize him in so many movies, because he has one eye that looks not the same way as the other eye. And mm-hmm. so I, I, but he is in so many British, like every British television drama, he shows up at least one, at one, at least once. <laughs> and he's... He, he loses against Bond, and then Bond and Cristados sit down for dinner, and I suppose this is Bond showing off again his, you know, refined culinary palate. I don't actually know any of what the stuff he's talking about, so I'm assuming it's all good. No, and he vetoes Cristados's wine selection. Mm-hmm. And I have never been to a dinner where, I mean, I, I, I've been to very few fancy dinners like this, but where somebody sure. orders something and then the other person says, I'll have exactly the same thing. I have actually gone okay. out to eat with people sometimes where someone will order something and it's like, oh, that sounds really good. I'll have the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've never done that? Well, not on purpose. I mean, he ordered uh, like three or four things. That's fair. Yeah, good point. It sort of reminds me of, uh, since we have to talk about Star Trek, when Kirk orders <laughs> the exact same pizza as Jillian in the pizza restaurant. <laughs> they both order large pizzas, yes. And Michelob's. I do like this moment here, and I, I can't decide if it's Cristados playing dumb or what. And I, I know he's playing dumb here, actually, because he's clearly on to Bond for, for real. But where he's like, you're with the British Narcotics Board, aren't you? Yeah. And Bond's just like, yeah, yeah go on. Tell me yep, more. Yeah, tell me more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, this is where we first see Columbo, who's having, yeah, who's having dinner with Liesel, who was hovering around the guy that Bond cleared out at the Baccarat table, or Chemin de Fer table. Liesel is played by Cassandra Harris, I think is her name. Yes. And she is Mrs. Pierce Brosnan. Yes, she is. Sadly, she would pass away not long after this movie. Well, I, I actually, I don't. I shouldn't say not long after. I know she she died very, very young. Yeah. 
Uh, Cassandra Harris died in 1991, so it would be a, a little while, but yeah. This is actually where Pierce Brosnan met Albert Broccoli and first came on his radar as somebody they should keep an eye on to possibly play Bond at some point. Right, yeah, and in fact they were considering him in the 80s, but he was he was playing Remington Steel at the time. I like how they very subtly, and I'm using that sarcastically, uh, switch out the lamp on their table because they have a microphone hidden or a, a recording device hidden inside their little table lamp <laughs> yes and the guy just comes in and t- takes it away and puts a new one down and they just kind of look at each other like what so yeah and then cassandra harris throws a drink in colombo's face and bond and christophos both point out that's christados both point out that that is a trap but bond is gonna mm-hmm. figure out what's going on anyway and i do like how christados doesn't like he really, you know, probably should have tried to prevent it, but he knew that it wouldn't have worked, so he doesn't. Yes. Like, for his own means, he probably should have, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I even, like, he's like, I'll stay and play some shemmy. Melina is also there, and this is, like, the first inkling we get that she's has an interest in James because she has a kind of a jealous reaction to him leaving with Liesel here. Yeah, she doesn't... There's definitely a look. Yeah, she, he, she gives a look. I, I'm, I've always tried couldn't quite figure out this whole part of the movie other than we need to find a way of getting him with Columbo. That's basically what this ha- what this was. And I think that was the whole point, was that she was going to... Because right before the bad guys show up, she says, when you leave, you can take my car. And yes. I believe at that point, her car would have taken him to Columbo. Probably. And I guess this is where Christados is calling it audible here because he intercepts them on the beach in the morning. I don't know why. I kind of enjoy the fact that she's not really who she says she is. She's actually some girl from Liverpool who mm-hmm. she she drops her cover because she's been drinking. It's kind of unfortunate what happens to her, I think. Yeah. I can't... Like, Locke just runs her down for no reason. Yeah. Doesn't really make sense. No, it doesn't. Any of this, but... Oh, poor Charles Dance just got an arrow in the back, though, just now. Yeah. He used to be a henchman like you, and then he took an arrow to the back. Sorry, terrible Skyrim reference. Yeah, it's okay. Um, and then all these people show up. Again, people are very bad at being secret because they have doves on their wetsuits. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and they're very large doves on their wetsuits, too. They're not subtle. And again, we have yet another moment in a long line of the good guy just being a dick to Bond because he gets clubbed in the head. Yeah. And then uh, and carry yeah, off to like... meet Columbo. <laughs> and I'm guessing, uh-huh. although... You know, as I'm talking through this, I'm also thinking, though, Columbo doesn't quite know what Bond's intentions are right now. He doesn't, no. So maybe it makes sense that he wouldn't trust him. I mean, he clearly doesn't at this point. I, I, I do really enjoy the portrayal of Columbo, though. I think the, the, the character is very interesting. He is. I, I like I how agree. he's always eating pistachios. You know, mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, it works. it works pretty well. Yeah, I don't know whose idea that was, but that's a good little character thing that he does. And I like, you know, this is where we find out, oh, well, Christados was talking about himself when he was talking about all these terrible things that he said I did. Columbo likes a lot of wood, too, I've noticed. Um, yeah. And I like that he has a painting or a picture of the dove thing on his wall, because I guess he really likes doves. I wonder, is it like a, is there like a special symbol? Was that like the symbol of the Greek resistance or something? Maybe. I Yeah, I don't know, because they, they talk about how Christados fought in the war, and so did mm-hmm. Columbo and everything. And Christados got all these 
accommodations, even though he was playing both sides, I guess. Well, I guess the dove is just his symbol. I, I, I just yeah. googled Greek resistance dove and didn't get anything. Okay. But anyway, man, we should really research these, research our thoughts better. I certainly should. <laughs> Watch the movie, isn't that enough? Come on. Apparently not. <laughs> I guess not. But yeah, I, I like the scene between them a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of testing each other out, and Columbo puts pulls out the gun and then hands it to Bond, um, saying, you know, we're going to go raid one of Christados's warehouses. Why don't you come with me? And Bond agrees and all this stuff. So They come in on a sailboat? I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting raid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not subtle. And apparently, and there are... Okay, so what are the barrels of opium supposed to look like? Are they supposed to be reams of paper or something? I can't... T- are they olive oil barrels? Or what are they supposed to be? I figured they would be olive oil barrels. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. And is opium a liquid? It depends on what movie you're watching. Because um, this is... <laughs> this is not the only time where Bond will lick something and immediately identify it as raw opium. That's true. So... Because, I, I mean... I guess heroin is a liquid, is I mean I think. You inject it, so it must be. I mean uh, I feel I feel as though so I know it happens again in The Living Daylights when he you know sticks his Why knife does he in know a, what opium tastes like? Well I was gonna ask that question too. Does raw opium have a flavor that is very distinctive? I've not had a narcotics. Hey history man, you don't know what life, Bond does so. in his spare time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I yeah. don't think i know anyone who's eaten opium if you've eaten opium feel free <laughs> if you've to been, please please reach out to us and leave us a comment yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have eaten opium while researching the legal history of james bond please let drop us a note <laughs> it's the only way to understand yeah. the it's the only way to really get through the legal history of james bond is to eat some opium yeah So eventually we have, you know, they, they find the mines that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Locke puts a plastic explosive on them or something and threatens to blow up the whole thing. We get one of my favorite Roger Moore scenes after this, although sort of like in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it's hurt by the fact that they forget whether it's day or night. <laughs> yes. Uh, because Roger Moore, because Locke takes off up this hill for re- some reason, I don't know where he thinks he's going, and Roger Moore takes off up this long staircase where it's it's pitch dark when he starts and by the time he gets to the top of the hill it's daylight well i think it's just bad day for night but it's yes. bad day for night yeah um i really do like the moment here where he shoots Locke, and Locke's car is about to go off a cliff uh, like it's kind of hanging there precariously and i feel like had this been moonraker when he said because he has the pin that that luigi had he tosses Locke the pin in Moonraker, the pin would have been what set the car off the cliff. I, I thought the pin was going to set the car off the cliff, and it does it, actually a little bit. It starts. It to starts. Fall. It does start to. Yeah, and then Roger Moore kick or James Bond kicks the car off the cliff, and I know Roger Moore hated doing that. Really? Yeah, he he objected to to actually doing that for whatever reason. He thought that that was not in keeping with the character that he had been playing. Hmm. Okay, I can see that. It is more of a Timothy Dalton sort of thing. It sort of is, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a pretty well done moment though. Like they have a the the dummy guy comes flying out the window at one point and onto the rocks and everything. Never had a head for heights, or had no head for heights. We then find uh, 
Kind of like that moment with Domino and Thunderball. We see Bond finds yeah, Melina. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no off-screen underwater sex in this one. There is not. So, she leaves the air tank there on the bottom. Yep. And that works out really well later. But yeah. how did Check off she tank. know to do that? I Yeah, that it's a very clumsy setup. Because, like, they swim around, and then she just takes off her air tank and leaves it. Like, for no... Yeah. yeah. Which makes no sense at all. It's only there so that later they'll have something to get oxygen from. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense at all for the actual characters to do that. No. I'll also say that the fake underwater close-ups look really fake. <laughs> a little bit. That was actually because Carol Bouquet could not dive. She had a ear problem and she was unable to do any diving as someone who has trouble with his ears adjusting to pressure changes i can relate so they're they're talking about where they would need to go to get the boat because we see the notes from her father is telling telling them exactly where it is and bond says that they'll need a special mixture of oxygen and helium and i looked it up and that is real you do need that for uh well you don't need it per se but it does help um with it helps prevent you from getting the bends they should all sound like mickey mouse they should when they're in the submarine but we'll we'll excuse that because for dramatic license mm-hmm. yeah they go we get a little bit of uh get a little bit of the abyss here almost a little yeah there. i like when the the shark swims out and then bond mm-hmm. says i hope it was dining alone <laughs> yeah uh we see lots of dead people in here as as you would we have Chekhov's detonator we get check out. I'm glad they didn't do the thing of, oh, which wire is it because the light goes out or something cheesy, because he mm-hmm. has the three different colors that he has to cut in order. So I'm I'm glad they resisted the urge to do that. Like I I realize that yes they want they do kind they do want to recover this, but I I also feel as though it probably would have worked better for Bond if he had just completed the destruction sequence. Yeah, because. This presumably isn't the only British ship that has the system on it. Or is it? Because later he says, now neither of us have it. They taunt. Yeah, that, I mean, that's where I kind of object to that line, which I like. I like the solution. It borrows a bit from, in this week's uh, Carl references a movie Thad has not seen yet, uh, in the movie Ice Station Zebra, which... I haven't even heard of that movie. Really? It was Howard Hughes' favorite movie. Oh, yeah, because, you know, me and Howard Hughes go well. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not a ob- super obscure movie. Okay, sure, but I no, I'm not familiar with it. It's similar in that there's a microfilm that has gone missing, and there's a race for the Americans and the Soviets to find it. And mm-hmm. what ends up happening is the they blow it up in the helicopter that flies off with it at the end, and so it, it nobody ends up with it. Um, and it's it's a similar ending here, where they where Bond destroys the the ATAC. But no, I mean, presumably the British built this thing so they would be able to make another one. You would think. Uh, we didn't mention Chekhov's deep diving suit, but we oh, do no, have that they did the see. return yeah. of the deep diving suit. Right, which is just there to have a little action beat under the water here. Honestly, the, the deep diving suit kind of makes this henchman in a discount Jaws. It, it kind of does, yeah. I do like, so, you know, we get, as you mentioned, Chekhov's detonator, which he sticks to the side of it. Mm-hmm. I, I do like how the timer stops and the guy, like, you can tell he's about to start swearing right as it's about to explode. I think that's a little yes. clever beat. Mm-hmm. But then this is where they're intercepted by 
Christados' men while they're underwater. Yeah, and they push the sub into the hole in the ship, which is kind of a... I kind of like that. That was a neat way to get around this. Yeah, yeah. Then they come back on board the ship and find that Christados has taken over the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. We also get a close-up shot of Krieger's dick for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Which I had not noticed until you pointed it out to me before we recorded, and now I will not be able to unsee that, so thank you. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) In those really short 80s swim trunks? Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. (laughs) And now we have a scene that comes from the novel Live and Let Die. We do. I finally know what you were referring to when I told you I was reading <laughs> Live and Let Die. You said there's a, there's one scene, there's one good scene in that book, and they use it in another movie. I finally now know which scene you were talking about. <laughs> well, and in, in in fine license to spiel tradition, I have to amend that and say there's two good scenes in them in Live and Let Die, and they're both used in different movies. Because uh, yeah. I, I rather like the he disagreed with something that ate him moment, which is also from Live and Let Die, the book. Yes, it is. As poor Felix Leiter is fed to a shark. But yes, this is this is sort of the climax of the book, the Live and Let Die book here. Uh, yeah, where, where they're dragged over the coral. Um, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it turns out differently. In the book, the ship that is dragging them blows up because Bond had put a mine on it. Uh, yep. In this case, they do the thing where they wrap the rope around some coral and managed to get away like i i I do wonder though why that why the sharks would suddenly go after the guy that fell into the water and wasn't bleeding yeah i don't know because one of them is bond and the other ones is henchman number seven uh i guess i don't i don't know and then okay so they they have make good use of that oxygen tank that they left in the bottom of the ocean yeah that was very convenient wasn't it and Crystallis is just like, oh, the sharks have him, we'll leave. And then leaves yep. their ship there. You know? Right. I feel as though Crystallis could have been a little more thorough. You think he would have blown up the ship or something. Right. Yeah. But if he blew up the ship, we wouldn't get the uh, Deus Ex Parrot moment here. Yeah, which I was where... expecting from the moment we saw the parrot. Oh, of course. The parrot is going to be the key to figuring out where something is um mm-hmm. yeah so you get them saying gosh we have no idea where the attack is and then the parrot says i i like the fact that that isn't exactly the solution because <laughs> you get bond going into a confessional forgive me father for i have sinned that's putting it mildly 007 that was good yeah and it turns out there's, like, a ton of St. Cyril's. 439 of them. 439 St. Cyril's, and they have to go to Colombo to find out exactly which one they're talking about. So I think that's I think that was a nice little moment there. Yeah, and uh, Colombo points out this abandoned monastery where they used to hide from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So now we have a Bond climbing the mountain and hiding from the guards. This is a great location, too. Oh, yeah. And, of course, we get more BB. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Check out stained glass window. I'm sure no one's going to go flying through that at some point. Oh, no, totally not. Uh, This is also really good stunt work. This, you know, the guy that's not Roger Moore, who's climbing this rope and gets dropped a few times. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the guard's a bit of an idiot here. I mean, he puts himself in harm's way way too much. 
but otherwise yes. I think this is a real another really well executed little scene here of Vaughn trying to get up the up this cliff. Yeah, it works uh, well in yeah. general, but yes, the guard is he should have just cut the rope. Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah. of working at those carabiner working at the climbing stakes. Yeah. Could have just cut the rope. Cut the rope. And that would have been the end. Yeah. But you know, Bond has to live. Uh they <laughs> they shoot the guy who's guarding the little basket room. You know, they they have a basket you can drop down and I like how, you know, they, they tend to him and they tie him up and then they're leaving and Columbo just goes, sorry, and clubs, clubs him with a gun. Yes, just to make sure he doesn't talk. But I just like that he apologizes to him right before he hits him. Yeah, and I and I, I think part of that was like he was like trying to trying to do it without, like, it, it felt a little like he was trying to do it without Melina knowing that he did it because he waits till she leaves before he does it. Yeah, yeah, that could be. So we now have a secret assault on the uh, mm-hmm. we run into bb's coach yep we learn that bb and she and bb are planning to are planning to leave christados mm-hmm. we get the obligatory bond fights big aryan man moment naturally and we get a stained glass window i like how he he rips that giant planter out of the wall yes and he's i also like go... how he was using the he was trying to stab him with the candlestick first yep and i i appreciate like that you know this is Considering the last movie, we had people up in space in a giant laser battle, and then we had potentially the end of the world happening. I like this low-key ending here with mm-hmm. uh, Christados and Columbo fighting their way up these stairs, trying to get the ATAC. And, you know, Bond's, Bond doesn't want Molina to shoot Christados, and, but uh, Columbo eventually kills him with a knife. Right, because Christados had pulled a knife that he was going to attack Bond. Right. And then Gogol shows up. <laughs> Gogol shows up, holds his hand out, and smiles for Bond to give him the the attack. And, like, yeah. it almost feels like... I I had said in my notes that it's like, you'd think, uh, you'd think he would recognize Bond. And now that I'm looking at it again, I think he does recognize Bond. He's just assuming yeah. that he'll give him the attack because he's got his goon there. Mm-hmm. His goon with a machine gun. And... Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Well done. But Bond throws it off the cliff instead. Yep. And I like how Gogol's like, no, don't shoot him. Like, and, and he's just kind of like, yep, yeah, okay. And he laughs and just kind of shrugs his shoulders and leaves. But it's not really a detente. It as is you not. Were saying. No. Yeah. And I've said this before, but I I've always liked Gogol. Yeah, Gogol's great. I think he I think he's a he's a great addition to this canvas that we have of characters here. We see BB is nursing uh, Columbo's wounds. It looks like Columbo will be her sponsor now. And Columbo is giving her pistachios because he's Columbo. Yeah. And then we're all set except for the obligatory end of the movie. Uh, yeah. Why? 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 <laughs> well, last time we piped Bond and Doctor Goodhead having sex to Buckingham Palace. So this time we're going to put them in touch with the Prime Minister. And yeah. yeah, this is just bad. This is terrible. Yeah, there's a someone playing Margaret Thatcher. I, I, I have to interrupt, though, and, and say first, before we get to Margaret Thatcher, that Bond has had an upgrade, and now his ticker tape watch has a digital display. Oh, yeah. Which is, not, which is nice. But yeah, we, we get somebody playing Margaret Thatcher. And her husband, Dennis. Mm-hmm. 
and they have the bird on the recording. They're thinking it's... So why do they keep setting up these unplanned things? Like, you'd think they would have learned their lesson. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think by now they'd be like, we're not going to... They could have waited, and Bond could have met the Prime Minister in person when he got back to England or something. Yeah. It's just it's just a really bad scene. Yeah, and then uh, to cap it off with a parrot saying, give us a kiss. Yep. Just, Oh, ugh. Mr. Bond, really? Now, I, I do know that the, this, this woman playing Margaret Thatcher is sort of, that, like, that's her thing. Like she was a oh, well-known professional Margaret yeah. Thatcher impersonator. Yes, which doesn't make okay, this any then. better, but not really. And we get another movie that just decides to end. Yes, it does. But James Bond <laughs> I mean, will return in Octopussy. He will, and oh boy, <laughs> those um, the high points of uh, of of James Bond will be leaving us briefly. I mean, I've I recently rewatched Octopussy just for the sake of doing it and I've already forgotten about it when I remember watching so I remember the I remember the crocodile that Bond is inside yes and I remember the circus and that's pretty much all I remember about Octopus <laughs> right and I also remember that the rest of it wasn't much better but other than that I don't remember it. I I remember the plane like the little plane that comes out of the fake horse butt. Oh, yes. Yes. Hey, it's going to make View to a Kill look good. Well, View to a Kill has Christopher Walken in it, so that's an improvement. It is. But I wouldn't call it, you know, a top five Bond movie or anything. No. No, but I would not either. anyway, this week we had For Your Eyes Only, which I think was reasonably good. I wouldn't put it in at the top, but I certainly wouldn't put it at the bottom. I like the more realistic spin on things that we'd gotten away from earlier in the Roger Moore era, uh, especially with Moonraker, which I, you know, we talked about last week. We both like that one. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just, it's just, they made one or two very unfortunate decisions with the story, mainly around having BB in it. Yeah. I, I think if you take her out of the movie, it's, it's quite a good movie. It's just unfortunate that she's in it. <laughs> yeah, well. And again, this is, that's not a knock on, Lynn Holly Johnson, I don't think anyone could have played that part very well. I, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, this is probably the, you know, we've we've had the high point of Roger Moore. I think, yes, definitely. Originally, I think this was supposed to be the, well, not originally, but at one point this was his last, expected to be his last movie. And, you know, maybe next week we'll talk a little bit about some options they had to replace him. Some of them were rather mm -hmm. amusing. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he he ultimately decides to come back for two more. Uh, I question whether that was the right decision. Yeah. Just just because he's too old. Yeah. No, I absolutely. I mean, I, he still gives a decent performance. It's, mm -hmm. He's just clearly too old for the role at this point. Yeah. I will say that uh, Bond doesn't peak as quickly as Pierce Brosnan, for instance. You mean the first movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the same thing about about Daniel Craig, actually. Yeah. But that's that's for a podcast I, down the road. I said Bond. I meant more. You knew what I meant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. More doesn't peak as early as Pierce Brosnan because he, he peaked partway through his run instead of at the very beginning. So that's something, right? Yeah. I mean, I it's hard to say which one 
so the last three movies, you know, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, and Fear Eyes Only, somewhere in there is the best Roger Moore movie. Yes. And I think there are elements in all three that are really good, and there's elements that are not quite so good. And I, you know, I, mm. I can't... With the other Bonds, you could certainly point to one of their movies and say that's the best one they did. I mean, it's easier with... I mean, obviously, Lazenby did one, so we can't really count him, and Dalton did two. But I think all the other ones, it's it's pretty easy to say that's their best film. Yeah, I, I think um, so. I, I think you could have a debate with between From Russia With Love and Goldfinger, depending on your mood, as being the best of oh, the Connery I, films. I could, I would probably debate in my own mind, depending on my mood. Yeah, on that mm-hmm. one, uh, either one is would are would be would be an acceptable answer as the best Connery film. Uh, yeah, but yeah, for Brosnan, it's definitely Goldeneye. For for I am now blanking on his Daniel name. Craig. Daniel Craig. Uh, I believe it will be Casino Royale. I have yeah. obviously at the time of this podcast we have not yet seen the final movie, so no, he could surprise us. He could, but I don't. I don't I'm, think I, so. Yeah, Casino no, Royale I, is so good. I just don't think it's so. Happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could still be. <laughs> yeah. No Time to Die could be a great movie and still not be better than Casino Royale. Yeah, but yeah, I mean. The Roger Moore, yeah, it's so one of these three. Depending on the day, I could probably give you a different answer, um, <laughs> but it's certainly not the next films. Thank you so much for listening to us this week. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Podspiel, or you can send us an email at spielpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Listening to Film, and you can find me on Twitter at Tyrannicus. This is the end of Free Rise Only, but License to Spiel will return with Octopussy. Mm-hmm.